0: Oh, this is leslie Garcia tensor and this is legal tensor casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics today i'm speaking with attorney lisa sornaf gotchman about her memoir at the altar of the appellate gods which traces her experience as a young state prosecutor arguing apprendi versus new jersey through a state appellate court and then ultimately in front of the supreme court of the united states thanks so much for joining me well thank you so much for asking me to your podcast well i loved your book and i just want to start by saying that What I loved about the book is not just kind of tracing your thrill of arguing this from, you know, state attorney to all of a sudden, you know, you get to be the one who argues at the Supreme Court, which, you know, you weren't, that was your first time obviously. But the other thing I really liked as a law professor and a lot of our listeners are law students is this idea that you nicely and with enthusiasm and interest kind of deal with all the nuances of submitting an appellate brief, And, you know, I've never practiced appellate law, but I remember back to my appellate law advocacy days, had to make sure my cover was the right color and all that stuff. So I think that there's a lot there to learn from, but also there's a lot of stuff that will resonate with students who haven't even practiced yet. So I really like that. Um, But let me start off by asking you, tell me a little bit about how you and this is in the book, but tell me a little bit about how you fell into Dealing with Apprendi, you know, how this case kind of filling in your lap.
1: I was working at the Division of Criminal Justice in the Office of the Attorney General in New Jersey in Trenton at the time. I was one of about 40 attorneys in the appellate section. And one thing I really love about working for the state government was that I didn't have to go out and network. I didn't have to drum up business. I just got assignments. And as I finished one assignment, another one would be waiting for me. And Apprendi was one of those assignments. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if my supervisors knew that it was destined for the United States Supreme Court that it necessarily would have been assigned to me, but it was assigned to me. Nobody knew at that point that it would go to the U.S. Supreme Court. It had a very interesting constitutional issue in it, the Sixth Amendment right to jury trial. Mm-hmm. And when I, When we did the case, I did the case in the appellate division, it then went up to the New Jersey Supreme Court, because it was my case, I kept it. And that's just, that's how it worked in my office. The case is your case until the defendant stops filing documents. Right. But when it got to the stage of the United States Supreme Court, it was clear that I was going to write the brief. It wasn't quite as clear who was gonna argue. Mm -hmm. But it was a lot of luck of the draw that I happened to get that assignment And inside was lurking a United States Supreme Court
0: issue. I feel like you advocated for yourself to get in front of the Supreme Court. At least in the book, it suggests that, you know, you were not the likely pick to do the oral arguments. That's correct, simply because
1: there were many attorneys in the office who had more seniority than I did and more appellate experience than I did who would be perfectly capable of arguing a case before the United States Supreme Court. But when I went up to talk to the Attorney General of New Jersey, who was John Farmer, Jr. He went on to be, um, he was special counsel to the 9-11 Commission. He was the Dean of Rutgers Law School in um, Newark, New Jersey. And now he is the Director of the Eagleton Institute for Politics at. Rutgers. Mm. And when I went up to meet with him, because he, he was the attorney representing the state of New Jersey, I was merely counsel of record. And he told me that he wanted to argue the case because this is his, his one and only chance to do so. And, you know, what am I going to say? No, you can't do that. I mean, he's my superior. He is actually the person on the, the cover of the brief to the court. I'm Again, I'm just counsel of record, but he represents the state of New Jersey. So I was a little heartbroken because I really wanted to argue, but I understood the situation. And I thought it would be a decent compromise that Attorney General Farmer would argue the case and I would second seat him, sit at council table in the United States Supreme Court and enjoy watching someone else argue a case. I gave him a copy of my brief to look at. It was still in draft form. And he went home and read it over the weekend and called me back to his office the next week and said, Lisa, I realize that the issues are too complex to get up to speed. It's not that he wasn't intellectually capable of handling a case before the United States Supreme Court. He had been a federal prosecutor, but he realized that his day-to-day obligations were too overwhelming to take on the responsibility of arguing before the United States Supreme Court in such an an important issue. Mm -hmm. So he said that I should argue it. And that meant that I got to leapfrog over many attorneys who had a lot more seniority than me, but had no connection to the case. Right. So in that respect, yes, I did advocate for it. I really wanted to argue and it worked out that I was able to. And just, I'm sorry, Attorney General Farmer second sat me. So he sat next to me at council table during the argument. And he got to sit back and watch while I argued.
0: Huh. And then just out of curiosity, had anyone in, the, um, in your office argued before the Supreme Court before? Yes, there had been a few
1: attorneys um, who had argued. In, in the 10 years or so before I argued, I think we had about three cases that went up to the United States Supreme Court. And since 2000, there have been no cases that have gone up to the United States Supreme Court from my office or any other prosecutor's office in New Jersey, for that matter. So it's very
0: fortunate. Wow. And, you know, one of the things that you talk about in your book, too, is this idea that you were mooted by some pretty significant people. But, you know, again, you know, talking to law students. So here you are going to the Supreme Court. You don't just go to the Supreme Court, right? You have to practice, practice, practice. So tell me a little bit about your moot court experience preparing for this argument. I had, well, I had
1: been mooted for the New Jersey Supreme Court argument. All cases that go to the New Jersey Supreme Court are mooted by the Division of Criminal Justice Appellate Section for their attorneys. And then when I went to the United States Supreme Court, I had another moot court from my own office. Uh But then I went down to Washington DC a few days in advance And because I worked for an attorney general's office, I was able to arrange for a moot court at the National Association of Attorneys General, or NAG, and they assist all state's attorneys in preparation of United States Supreme Court arguments. Mm -hmm. So I had a moot court there, and that was with Dan Schweitzer, who was and still is Supreme Court counsel for NAG, and Edward Dumont, who was an assistant solicitor general and Ed was coming in as amicus on, on behalf of the Solicitor General's office for the state of New Jersey. So I was going to be sharing my argument time with him. Argument time is one hour for cases in the United States Supreme Court. Each side gets half an hour. Mm-hmm. But since I was sharing my time, I got 20 minutes and Ed got 10 minutes. So he was on my moot court. Um, He had also argued one of the principal cases that had come out of the United States Supreme Court within the 18 months prior to Apprendi that addressed this sentencing factor versus elements of the offense. Right. So he was an excellent person to have on my moot court. I also had um, two Supreme Court NAG fellows who were just as conversant and apprendy as I was. Everybody was, you know, very up to date on the, on the issues, on the law. And they gave me a very difficult time, which is the purpose of mood court. Right. That's
0: what you want. Is it, yes. is it, is it required? I mean, is it required or is it like, I mean, it would, be, it would make no sense to go and call to the Supreme Court of the United States. I understand that, but it sounds to me from what you're saying, like it's something that does the Supreme Court require you to, to do kind of a moot before you get there? Or is that just good advocacy
1: practice? Just good advocacy practice. There's no requirement. the court doesn't ask you to do it. They just anticipate that you will. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it and it's necessary. Um, you know, I think the best moot court that I had for this was a couple of nights before the argument, Dan Schweitzer of NAG and the two NAG fellows. Denise Simpson and Patrick Delmida, who is now an appellate division judge in New Jersey, they came to my hotel room. My argument was Tuesday morning, they came to my hotel room uh, Sunday evening Mm -hmm. and they just grilled me for hours.
0: Mm. And
1: that was probably the best moot court that I had. It was the most informal and it was the one that really got me to think about Apprendi in the larger scheme of things, not just New Jersey's hate crime statute, but all potential federal and state statutes that might be affected by an adverse decision in
0: apprendi. Right. Which, by the way, I think I told you this. I wrote, you know, one of my law review articles, that I used to get tenure at my law school was on apprentice. So, cause it was like the whole sentencing factor thing, you know, that's, that was, that's a, that was a game changer, you know? It, it was. was, you know? It um, was. So, and I guess you should speak just for listeners who aren't familiar with the case. Tell us a little bit about the case itself. I mean, you could, you know, it comes out as a, as a horrible race, you know, motivated or so, you know, it seems case, but what was, what, what was the, the case and what was the issue that you litigated? The issue revolved around New Jersey's hate crime
1: statute, which permitted a sentencing judge to increase a defendant's sentence above the ordinary maximum term if the judge found that the crime was committed with racial animosity or because the victim's sexual orientation, race, religion. Um, And the defendant was arguing that only a jury could make the finding of racial animosity. The statute allowed the judge to make that finding under a fairly low burden of proof, preponderance of the evidence. Mm -hmm. So defendant was arguing all along that under the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial, only a jury could make a finding of racial animosity and had to do so beyond a reasonable doubt before a defendant sentence could be bumped up into the next sentencing range. Mm-hmm. What happens in this case, Charles Apprendi was a white middle-aged pharmacist living in Vineland, New Jersey, which is about 45 minutes east of Philadelphia, kind of a rural town. Mm-hmm. And he was very unhappy that a black family had moved into his neighborhood. So on four separate nights just before Christmas in 1994, he fired his rifle into the home of the folks family fortunately nobody was physically injured or killed but there was a lot of damage to the house itself and there was an awful lot of psychological trauma to the family yeah. it was uh two parents you know mom and dad and three young kids who had just and moved what- in right they had just moved in They had just moved into their house and um, so on four separate nights, Apprendi took his high powered rifle and fired into the house. On the fourth night, a neighbor recognized the truck that was parked outside the home, heard the gunshots and called the police. And the police came to Apprendi's house. He lived about a half a mile or a quarter of a mile down the road from his victims the engine of the truck was still warm. The police arrested Apprendi and he admitted that he was, he had fired guns into the house because he was sending the victims a message that they were unwelcome in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So he pleaded guilty to possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose, which in New Jersey is a second degree crime punishable up to 10 years in prison. And the state um, I was not involved in this stage of the litigation at this time. This was in the Cumberland County Prosecutor's Office. So it's the very first stage of the criminal prosecution. Right. And the Prosecutor's Office served Apprendi with notice that they were going to seek an extended term under New Jersey's hate crime statute. A hearing was held. The police officer who arrested Apprendi testified that Apprendi admitted to him that he fired his rifle into the home because he, wanted to send a message that Black people were not welcome in his neighborhood. Apprendi also testified. He claimed that the victim's purple door, and it it, is hard to see the purple on this door. It was just a burgundy frame around large panes of glass. But he said that this burgundy or purple door incensed him. So he went home and got his (laughs) rifle and used that as a target. Uh, which really what he was using as a target, because again, this was just before Christmas, a few days before Christmas, and on those glass panes on the front door were two black Santa Claus faces as Christmas decorations, and that's what Apprendi used for his target. Right. So the judge found that the crime was racially motivated and increased the defendant's sentence. Instead of facing a maximum term of 10 years, he now faced a maximum term twenty years, but the judge actually only increased his sentence to two years. So Apprendi got a twelve-year maximum sentence mm-hmm. for his crimes, and the issue became whether it was the judge or the jury who could make the finding of racial animosity before the defendant's sentence could be increased.
0: Right, and so that and that was the issue that made it all the way up to the court. Yes, and, um, they called it a. Um, element enhancer right well a sentencing enhancer sentencing enhancer that's what i'm thinking about and unfortunately you it did not have a happy win ending for you i think it had a happy experience ending for you but the case was not resolved in your favor correct right? yeah correct so but yes but, i
1: lost i lost five to four which is
0: the closest you can come right. to winning without winning right and you know what? I think you lost five to four, but it was kind of a rule in favor of defendants. That's how I read it. More than still yes. against you. Um, Correct. Why was the your office so committed on taking this all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States? Well, it wasn't our petition. I mean, we didn't really want it to go
1: to the United States Supreme Court. We had one. In both state courts, the appellate division, which is the intermediate appellate court, and the New Jersey Supreme Court, and both courts had upheld the New Jersey's hate crime statute as constitutional. Mm -hmm. So uh, from a professional standpoint, we did not want this case to go to the United States Supreme Court, but it was the defendant, he was the losing party, who filed the petition to the United States Supreme Court and the court granted it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean on a on a personal level, I was thrilled that my case was going to the United right. States. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. on a professional level, we had one in the court in the New Jersey court system and we were kind of you know, we kind of thought that the United States Supreme Court took this case not to uphold the hate crime statute but to, you know, find it unconstitutional. Right. There had been two cases within 18 months prior to my argument in Apprendi where the Supreme Court of the United States had addressed this sentencing factor versus elements of the offense. Mm-hmm. And the cases were coming out four or five with Justice Thomas as the swing vote. Right. So Apprendi became a good vehicle for the court
0: to take up um, to resolve this issue. Right. You know, I, I think, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like Apprendi was fighting over a two-year sentence enhancement, right? That's correct. Which is isn't that much time. I mean, you know, any time is time, but it's not, you know, it, 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 and it changed so many things. Um, just to pivot a little bit, tell me about the thrill of appearing before the justices um, in your book, and I will plug the name of your book again, At the Altar of the Appellate God's arguing before the US Supreme Court, which is available on Amazon. But I think you do a nice job of talking about the different relationship you felt from each judge in terms of the way they questioned you.
1: Yes, each judge certainly is an individual in terms of their questioning and their points of view. It went the spectrum from You know, Justice Ginsburg, who I knew wasn't on my side based on her prior votes in these two other cases, but she was, you know, professional and gracious. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was, um, sometimes a court will, a judge will ask questions not to trip up the attorney in front of them, but to telegraph their position to the other justices and that's what justice o'connor did and mm-hmm. i knew that she was on my side based on the prior um opinions and then there was justice Scalia, who you know
0: grabbed onto my ankle and wouldn't let go yeah i need mean, you talk about that in the in the book um so did you study i guess you studied their opinions did you did you get a sense of what their in person, I guess their persona would be like, like, did you get a sense of, before you went in, did you get a sense of kind of, what kind of personality they brought to the um, courtroom?
1: Um, yes and no, I, I, you know, back in 2000, unless you went to see a Supreme Court argument and I had seen, I had gone the day before actually to watch the uh, the arguments, the day before my own argument, just to get myself acclimated with the court. But there really wasn't much of an opportunity at, back then to really listen to arguments and see them in person. It, still, just to see them in person, you physically have to be in the courtroom to watch any argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I certainly had an idea of which justices were might vote in my favor and which justices wouldn't. And I knew that Justice Scalia was not, Going to be my friend. Mm-hmm. I don't think I anticipated the level of animosity that I encountered from him. But, as I say in the book, he was wrestling with the fact that there was a, another case out there dealing with the Sixth Amendment issue that didn't that that didn't jive with what he was arguing about Apprendi versus New Jersey. And I exposed that flaw in his legal reasoning at the oral
0: argument. I don't think he was too pleased with me about that.
1: Hmm.
0: Interesting. Well, you know, again, and my one of my favorite parts is that you not only do you write this really well, but you offer a poem up at the end. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about why you wrote yourself a poem. Well, I used to write poems like
1: that for people when they were, you know, for their birthdays or if they were um, retiring. And it was just something I used to love to do. I haven't written a poem in a while. And I, I really was, the theme of the poem or the, the gist of the poem was my search for the perfect briefcase right. to bring with me to the United States Supreme Court. And I wrote a
0: poem about it. And
1: I had fun doing
0: it. You know, I, I love that. And the reason I bring it up, I, when I teach, sometimes I start my classes with what I call pump-upping music. And, you know, everyone needs a distraction to get them excited for the big event. And so what struck me about your poem was that that was at least, you know, I don't I don't know you. I'm reading into it was that that was your way to kind of take, you know, let the emotion out before you go in for, you know, or the anxiety, I should say, before you go in and have your your day in court, literally. And I just think that that's another tool. I mean, that's why I like this book, too. It really And by the way, as an aside, congratulations on Linda Greenhouse endorsing it. That's pretty impressive. But Thank you. That's very impressive. But I think for students and listeners, it not only is, yes, it's your memoir, but I think it really gives a very clear discussion of what goes into presenting any appellate court argument to the, or any Supreme Court argument, I should say. Because to your point, it is kind of cloaked in secrecy to some degree. Yeah, and you also, you know, you have to maintain yourself, your your sense of humor.
1: Mm -hmm. I I write about it in the book that a couple of nights before the argument, the valet at the hotel we were staying at at Capitol Hill um, totaled my car. (laughs) And, you know, those are the kinds of events that you don't think about or anticipate. And here was my car, you know, crashed into various inanimate objects on New Jersey Avenue Three be nights nice before my argument, right, so I, I think the poem was part of that also, you know, my nervous energy and you know trying to trying to keep a, a sense of humor about things. I, I didn't know what it would be like to argue in the United States Supreme Court. I had never done it before, right and but at least I knew I had to have a great briefcase.
0: <laughs> I love that. so summing it all up, what was? I don't know if you can answer this, but is there a single moment in the entire experience from taking the case uh, from the trial court all the way through, you know, speaking in front of the Supreme Court? Is there a single moment that was a true highlight of your entire experience? Absolutely. When Justice O'Connor was asking
1: me a question, it was a rather lengthy question. As I mentioned before, she wasn't really asking me a question so much as she was telegraphing to the other justices what her thoughts were on this issue Mm -hmm. and I remember I remember listening to her and thinking to myself this is so cool Justice O'Connor is asking me a question because she had just been sworn in as the first female associate justice of the United States Supreme Court when I was a first-year law student and that was a huge deal for female lawyers or, and lawyer, you know, wannabes, that there was finally a woman on the United States Supreme Court. And then here she was talking to me. It was very surreal and it was wonderful. Wow, that's so cool. Well, thank you
0: so much for taking the time to speak with me. Again, the book is At the Altar of the Appellate Gods, Arguing Before the U.S. Supreme Court, a memoir. Spring Break is coming up for some of you. it's a great read. It's an easy read. And I think it's an important read. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. This was great. Thank you. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day.